Alright, first John chapter five, verses six through nine. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. Let me stop right here for a second. If you are not in a King James or a New King James Bible, you may not see verse number 7 in your text. And I'll get to that in just a moment, and we'll talk about it a little bit, and I'll explain it. Uh, but verse 7 says, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three, verse 8, that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God, which He has testified of His Son. Let's pray. Father, just thank You so much for Your awesome and amazing Word. Lord, for Your witness of Jesus Christ, that we may come to place our faith in Him, and that He would grant us eternal salvation for those who place their faith in Him, for those who are adopted into your family, Lord. So we thank you for this witness. May we carry this witness within us and share it with the world. Father, this is your time. It's all about you, all about your glory. So Father, feed us, draw us close. Renew our fire, and our passion for you. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, a little bit of background here. We already know, as we've gone throughout the book of 1 John, that John has been, quite often throughout this book, addressing the fallacies and the heresies of some false teachers that have made their way in. And just to give you a little bit more detail, a little bit more background, Serenthus, uh, who was a contemporary of John, was, he was raised in Egypt, and he led one of the first heretical sects of Christendom. Uh, the heretical teaching of Serenthus and his, as his followers is as follows. This, these are the main tenets. Number one, they made a distinguishment between Jesus and the Christ. They thought that Jesus and the Christ were two separate entities. I'll explain that in just... What they mean by that is they held that Jesus was a mere man. Jesus was nothing but a human. That he was born of Joseph and Mary um, in the traditional way. And... The, the Christ, they believed, descended upon Jesus at the baptism and then left him before the cross. So Jesus was simply a man whom had the Christ descend on him when he was baptized and then before he was placed on the cross, it left him 
leaving Jesus to be just a man one more time as he was crucified. According to this theory that the false teachers had, Jesus was united with the Christ at baptism, became separated at the cross, and elements of this same teaching can be found uh, in, in the 4th century Aryan sect. Now, the Aryans were a relatively small sect, but they were very active, made a whole lot of noise during the 4th century. Um, I'll talk a little bit about them in a second. But the same teachings were found with them. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism all have elements of this teaching within so, to two modern-day sects also show evidence of this same teaching. Uh, it was to refute this teaching and this, this very fundamental heresy that we see here that John, knowing that Jesus was the Christ before and during the baptism and after the cross, knowing that throughout all eternity, Jesus has been the Christ. Uh, Christ is not so much a name, but a title. Uh, describing who Jesus is, uh, very similar to the title of Messiah. He is the, the Savior. He come, come to save us, and this is the role of the Christ. So, um, Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Christ, more accurately. It, um, but John knew that throughout eternity, Jesus has been the Christ. He is our Savior. He is our Messiah. Always has been. Always will be. So, John by saying that Jesus came of water and the blood, was refuting his teaching, and we're going to explain that as well. The baptism is, of Jesus is very significant. It marks the beginning of his public ministry. That's when he was publicly revealed as the Christ, as the Messiah. So it is very significant. It, it, this is when people began to truly recognize Jesus as the Christ. And it publicly identified him as so, as the Messiah. It also fulfills the necessary historical basis of the statement that Jesus came by water and blood. The blood happens in a different, separate event, of course. But it, but it fulfills that statement of John, or it helps fulfill it and effectively answers the claims of these false teachers. Uh, he's definitely contradicting what the false teachers have put forth here about Jesus Christ. Jesus also came into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, by the blood of the cross. Now Hebrews 9.12 tells us this, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. By the shedding of his blood, we know that when he was on the cross, the temple was still stood and was being used at that time. And the Holy of Holies was the innermost part of the temple. You had the courtyard on the outside. Then you have the holy place uh, 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 on the inside. And then on the innermost part of the temple uh, beyond the holy place was the holy of holies or the most holy place and this was a very exclusive place only only person allowed in the holy of holies was the high priest 
He ain't going often. He went in once a year to to make to make atonement to to uh, uh, be to make atonement for sin and pour blood on the mercy seat of the uh, Ark of the Covenant because inside this was simply the Ark of the Covenant covered by seraphim, and, and he went in and poured the poured blood offering over the horns on the Ark of the Covenant. And he went in once a year. This was a very exclusive place. And it was, on the entranceway, was a veil, a curtain, if you will, but not a curtain like we think of a curtain. This thing was, was woven solid and thick. I can't even imagine a woven piece of material probably pushing a foot thicker, so it would weigh a ton. And it said a two-team of oxen couldn't tear it in half, which sounds about right. But when Jesus died on the cross, that veil was ripped apart from top to bottom. It was ripped open, and the Holy of Holies was left open and accessible. Now really what that means is we don't need a mediator. There's nothing standing in the way of us and God except for our sin itself. Once that's reconciled through Jesus Christ, there's nothing standing in the way between us and God. We can take our petitions directly to Him. The only mediator is Jesus Christ Himself. We don't need to go to a man, no priest, no preacher, uh, we don't, no, no rabbi, nothing else. We don't need to go to a man to take our problems before God to make intercession for us. We can talk to him ourselves. Because we have an accessible God who loves us, who wants us strong close, who wants us to be part of our family. Jesus Christ paid that price and he's the only mediator and he's the only one we need. So strictly speaking and technically speaking, the office of priesthood even no longer exists in this church age because it's completely unnecessary. I mean, yes, there are priests out there um, and the Jews still practice this. And, and, uh, but, you know, the office of the priesthood, we don't need a mediator. Uh, Catholics do essentially the same thing as the quote-unquote priest in, in the Catholic Church, you, you take your sin to them and they mediate to God, you, know, you make this confession to them. But that's completely unnecessary. Um, in the same way that we have a complete scripture now, so prophets are unnecessary in this day and age. Apostles, true apostles died out with John. They were no longer necessary. God's revelation to us at this point is complete. We have it all in the Bible, in the Word of God. But Jesus came by water and the blood through the baptism, which marked the beginning of his public ministry. Uh, through the blood of the cross, he opened up the Holy of Holies and gave us direct access to the Lord. The water and blood were confirmed in another way at Jesus' death, if you recall, John 19, 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Now when this soldier 
pierced his side as Jesus was hanging up here on this cross, and the soldier underneath, and he took this long spear and he pierced his side. He would have gone in right under the rib cage up here, gone in at an angle, and and and, and pierced upward. That would have pierced uh, lung and and heart both. Uh, uh, th these guys, I mean, they knew exactly what they were doing. They were professionals, so to speak. They knew their jobs. Uh, also, other prophecies fulfilled in that as they did not typically, in order to hasten the death of a prisoner on the cross who was being crucified, they would go by and they would break their legs because this prevented them from being able to breathe at all because as their feet were nailed to the cross they had a block their, their legs were bent they had a block under their feet because as you're hanging like this you 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 can't can't really breathe you can inhale and you can't exhale and so in order to complete that cycle they would have to push up on the block to take some of the stress off the off the arms where they were hanging so that they could breathe some. So they would break the legs. They weren't able to do that. and They would die as asphyxiation. Uh, they weren't able to breathe. Uh, with Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. No bones were broken, as prophecy uh, from the Old Testament says. Uh, so they pierced his side, just to be sure. The water and blood came out. Another fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus did not come by water only, as these false teachers believed and taught. He came by blood as well. Matter of fact, it's, a, it's an extremely important part of Jesus' ministry. It, 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 it defines his purpose on this earth. So he came by blood as, as well. His ministry was not only a baptizing one, but a sacrificial one. It was a ministry of redemption. To redeem, meaning to buy back. Back in the Garden of Eden at the beginning of creation, Satan deceived Adam and Eve, effectively stole that intimate relationship between them and the Lord by placing sin in between. And what Satan has stolen away, Jesus bought back at the price of his own blood. This is the basis of his ministry, his purpose coming to earth as a man. He was the Christ from before birth. He is still the Christ after the death and resurrection on the cross. He is the Christ throughout all eternity. John knew this. John preached this. John taught this. And he, he was not going to let these false teachings uh, uh, interfere with that. Water and blood also became very symbolic throughout Scripture. This coming by water and by blood is the basis of our salvation. And that's what the gospel is all about. God's glory through our salvation. 
It's a work that only he can do. And it's a work that ultimately glorifies him. The work of salvation isn't for our glory. It isn't for our boasting. It isn't for our bragging. It is to glorify the Lord God. Because only by his power and his authority has he redeemed us. So he gets all the glory, all the praise, and all the credit. This, the, the, the coming by water and blood, says the basis of our salvation, uh, it confirms that Jesus is the Christ, the, the water does, and the blood confirms his sacrifice. And the third part of this, so the water and the blood have been witnesses to who Jesus is. The third witness is the Holy Spirit himself. It is he who testifies, John says, in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 26. He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of the truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And the Spirit continues to bear witness today of Jesus Christ. That is his ministry here on earth today, is he bears witness to Jesus Christ. He convicts us. He points us to Christ. He opens up the Scriptures to us and illuminates Christ in our lives that is his ministry today now all these witnesses this part's not in the outline because it's kind of a cursory background info uh, but ancient sale documents sometimes included the signatures of of several witnesses attesting to a sale it was how it was confirmed we do very similar process today uh, by documents being either notarized or signed by other witnesses to confirm their truthfulness, their authenticity. And so we do essentially the same thing today. Uh, the Old Testament courts always, in, when, when accusations were made, they always required a minimum of two dependable witnesses. Deuteronomy 17.6, Deuteronomy 19.15 both give you the background information on that. Uh, but, but needless to say, you know, witnesses have always been required. This wasn't a lawless time in history during the Old Testament times. Uh, uh, before someone would be punished for a crime they were accused of, uh, they had to be judged on the basis of two or three witnesses. There was due process very similar to in some respects, to what we have today. Uh, uh, you know, there, there were safeguards in place. So in modern times, we could picture a courtroom scene. And I've spent more time in court than I, than I, than I care to remember, really. But we could picture a courtroom scene. And witnesses being called to the stand as we try to verify the identity of Christ. John stands up and says, Your Honor, Your Honor, I'd like to call water to the stand. 
Yeah, I'm sure that would cause quite a stir. I'd like to call blood to the stand. I'm sure that would cause quite a stir and, and, and probably incur the wrath of just about any judge I know. Uh, you know, we, we, we have a lot of different judges right here in the state of South Carolina. We have some good judges, some that, uh, well, are, are, are not so good. But they all have one thing in common, and, and, and that is they can all be somewhat temperamental. I think it's just a mark of being a judge. And when they're in that courtroom, they don't care for shenanigans. They want things done in the, in the proper procedural way and so on and so forth, which is rightfully so. So I could just see somebody standing up and say, I call water to the stand. Yeah, it wouldn't go over well, but, but in reality what John has done here, he cites three impeccable witnesses who, whose truthfulness and authority cannot be legitimately questioned in any way. Now, Verse 7 that I talked about earlier, 1 John chapter 5. For there are three witnesses, uh, three that bear witness in heaven. The Father, the Word, that's Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. This is a very clear statement of the Trinity. The most clear statement of the Trinity that you'll find in all of Scripture. It, it, it is spelled out for you in this verse. Here's why you don't see it in a lot of the more modern Bibles. Uh, this being the, the clearest, most explicit statement uh, of the doctrine of the Trinity. We literally have thousands of Greek manuscripts available to us. Uh, 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 so many so, so many source texts that nobody can legitimately question the validity of the Bible. I mean, we, we have thousands upon thousands of source texts, particularly in the Greek, not so many in the Hebrew, but it, it, um, still a lot in the Hebrew, but, but in the Greek we have thousands. Now this verse, verse 7, it's found in Latin manuscripts, those date to a later time in history. Uh, but it's only found in the manuscripts of four Greek Bibles, four ancient Greek manuscripts. Now, in several others, it's found as an annotation in the margins put in by scribes, copyists. But it's only found, actually, uh, uh, in the text of four of the many thousands of Greek manuscripts. That raises an interesting point among biblical scholars. Was it an original part of Scripture, or was it not? Did it begin as kind of an annotation that we see in several, several manuscripts, and then later just kind of somehow found its way as part of the text of Scripture? What's the issue here? A lot of scholars believe it to be a, a, an addition by copyists that eventually made its way into the scriptural text. Uh, 
And therefore, in a lot of the modern translations, it, along with a number of other verses, are not included. Or they might have a fit, footnote attesting to, to this theory. Let me just say first and foremost that if, if this is true, if it was not an original part of the text, it's not that big a deal because there are plenty of other places in the Scripture that also confirm the Trinity. This just happens to be the most explicit one that truly spells it out. But there are plenty of Scriptures that that uh, confirm the Trinity and point to it. So, you know, it, it doesn't, it's, it's not a humongous deal. The doctrine of the Trinity doesn't depend upon this verse. Uh, and I listed a few of those scriptures on your outline, just a few, there are a ton of them. But I'm just going to, just uh, the last two I listed, Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, and the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Those two I'm going to read. This is the creation account, Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, hovering over the face of the water, or you could say brooding like a, like a ham broods over her nest and her eggs. Brooding over the deep. He was part of the creation. The Holy Spirit has a part in the creation. Point blank. And of course we see throughout the first chapter of Genesis God actively speaking things, God the Father actively speaking things in creation. So here we see in Genesis, just in Genesis, the Father and the Holy Spirit in the act of creation, together. Now John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. So here we see Jesus Christ, the Word, as the Creator. So between Genesis and John, we have the Father, the Holy Spirit and the Son all confirmed as the Creator. Again, and, uh, so those two provide a pretty explicit statement of the Trinity of the Doctrine as well once you put them together. Now having said that, I believe that verse 7 in 1 John chapter 5, fits perfectly into the context of the Scripture. And to me, it does not read like an add-in. That's just my personal opinion. It doesn't read as if it's been added in to, to me. I think it flows very smoothly and it fits perfectly within the context. And again, in my opinion, the removal of verse 7 makes verse 8 pretty redundant, actually. But again, that's just my, my opinion. 
I, I, I think it makes it verse 8 redundant to verse 6, really, if you take verse 7 out. But with verse 7, I believe it flows very smoothly and makes a lot of sense. An alternative theory is that this verse was expunged from a lot of the available manuscripts during the height of the Arian controversy in the 4th century. Now, as I alluded to, the Arians were a small but very vocal sect. They didn't last a super long time, but they made a lot of waves while they were here. Matter of fact, they uh, made a lot of arguments within the Council of Nicaea uh, uh, as, as churches and leaders were gathering together to try to confirm the canon of the gospel. The anti-Trinity anti Arians made a lot of noise there at the Council of Nicaea. Just, to, just as one example. But they were very anti the Trinity. And they made a lot of noise. They were small with a big presence, if that makes any sense. So, having said that, many and, and a, a huge portion of the Greek manuscripts we have available to us today the oldest and what are deemed to be the most reliable ones, date back to that same time period to that same region. Uh, the, the Arians were very heavily active in the area of Alexandria, Egypt. And this is where a lot of these manuscripts date back to. Same time period, same region. So the theory goes that these Trinitarian verses may have been expunged from a lot of the available manuscripts at the time by the Arian sect. I don't know if that's true or not. I wasn't there. I have no idea what happened except what little bit history records. So I can't answer that question for you. I don't know which theory is correct. I just believe that verse 7 fits perfectly and flows well and matches the teachings of the rest of the Scripture. Here's another thing. It would seem to make more sense to me. Okay, say over here, you've got a copyist who believes the inerrancy of Scripture. And over here, you've got some, not so much. We don't believe in the Trinity. Uh, uh, we don't place a lot of value on the authority of Jesus, that kind of stuff. It would make more sense to me that the person over here who's not really sold on scriptural inerrancy and doesn't really revere it very much, it would make more sense to me that that person would take something out of the scripture than the person over here, the copyist who believes in the inerrancy of scripture and, and, and reveres it. I would believe that he would be quicker to take something out than the one who believes it would be to add something in. But again, that's <laughs> yeah, I don't know what happened. I wasn't there, obviously. I'm, I'm, I'm aging, but I'm not that old. I haven't been around quite that long. Anyway, whatever the case, I'm including verse 7. I'm reading it. You know, it's, uh, 
I believe it to be my personal opinion part of the scripture, a legitimate part of the scripture, but it's not something I fret over. It's something I thought that I would teach and draw a little bit of attention to since we're in this section that depending on what Bible version you're looking at. And this is certainly not to cast any aspersions or to uh, on any of the modern Bible versions. In fact, I find them very, very useful. I typically preach out of New King James. Uh, in particular, I'm a huge fan of the ESV. It's one of my favorite versions. Um, so th this is not to cast any dispersions. It it's just a different theory on scripture and the legitimacy of, of, of which manuscripts we're going to use. Nothing more, nothing less. The scripture, regardless, uh, um, and, and the older manuscripts agree on almost, I mean, on virtually everything. So this does not really pose a, a real issue to Christians or, or to the church, but I, I just thought I would explain it a little bit, mainly because something I find interesting when we look at the issue of textual criticism. But anyway, get off the academics and back into the preaching. <laughs> but um, here, here's, here's the deal. The, the baptism of Jesus, the Father and the Spirit testified to the Son at the baptism of Jesus. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I can't imagine joy of the Father, seeing the Son do His work so faithfully. Unfortunately, as, as medical circumstances would have, I was not able to physically baptize Rachel. Uh, my father-in-law did it when she was baptized because um, being on dialysis and having a a port down in my abdominal area. I could not be submerged in water. Uh, so I was unable to physically baptize Rachel. My father-in-law did it, and I'm very grateful and thankful for him. I can't think of anyone better, better qualified in my stead than, than he was or is. But I did get to baptize dry when, when he was saved. And that was the first thing that came to my mind, was these words of the Lord at the baptism of Jesus. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And it is, it is an amazing feeling. And yeah, I can't even imagine what God was feeling. He has emotions as well. And he feels emotions. We see that throughout scripture. Yeah, he angers. He has, has joy. He has anger. He has the range of emotions that he has given us. We can grieve the Lord. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We saw Jesus cry. Uh, so, you know, God doesn't give us anything he doesn't have. But anyway, the testified of him at the baptism. 
The Holy Spirit testified throughout Jesus' life as to his identity. Both the baptism and the crucifixion of Jesus have both strongly attested historical facts. They all testify to the same thing, which creates a very reliable witness. When you have all these witnesses come together that agree, it makes for a very reliable witness as a whole. And it becomes very influential. This is what we have in Jesus Christ. It's a very reliable witness that spans such a broad spectrum. The physical witness, the, the, the spiritual witness, uh, uh, the witness of those who saw him. And then the witness of those of us today who have experienced him in a very personal way through his saving grace. And most importantly at all, of all, the witness of the Word of God himself, the Scripture, the Holy Bible that we have access to. So we have all these witnesses in accordance, in agreeance today, testifying to Jesus Christ. It's very reliable, and I think the problem that we have in general is we don't call attention to all of these witnesses. We just say, you need to believe in Jesus. The problem is, so many really don't know who Jesus is. They know the name, but they really don't know who he is. They have no concept of him. They haven't experienced him. What are they believing? We, we don't draw attention to the witnesses, the reliable witnesses that we have. And I think this is what the church needs to be, and I'm talking in general, needs to be more diligent of. God has given us all of this. It's there for us to use, to point to Him. It's what it testifies of. So, we already know that the Holy Spirit being God is, is a person in a sense. God, in a sense, is a person. Uh, Jesus quite literally came as a person. And the Holy Spirit, of course, is personified as well with all these traits that a person has. And by speaking of them in agreement, the water and the blood become somewhat personified too meaning that they are manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. And we saw at the crucifixion how the water and blood came pouring out. So John's argument brings us right back to Jesus being the Christ. Always, at all times, throughout eternity, Jesus always has been, always will be, and always is the Christ. You know, we have no problem believing what men say. I mean, you put it in the textbook and we believe it, regardless of what it says. And those things change all the time, especially science textbooks. You know, math doesn't so much change, but, but, but uh, particularly science textbooks, they change and revise constantly. And that's fine. New discoveries are made, you change them, you revise them, that's, that's fine. 
But we take for gospel what men say without a question. But the infallible, unchanging word of God himself, we have a hard time believing. Look how many people fall for Darwin and his theories. But when, when it comes to God, the one true witness who was there during the creation and what he has to say, people dismiss and don't believe. But God's word reigns supreme. Whether anybody likes it or not, in the end, that's going to be the case. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And nobody's going to have a choice. And have you ever thought about, I have no idea I mean, how long I've been going, not, but we're getting close to wrapping it up, but just something to come to mind. Have you ever thought about, at the time that Jesus was arrested, and all these guards, these soldiers come up, and they're toting swords, they're heavily armed, and they say, where is this Jesus of Nazareth? We're here to arrest him. Jesus steps up and says, I am he. Does anybody recall what the guards do at that point? What the soldiers do? They fall to the ground. Why is that? Because, I'll tell you why it is. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. And he, in some way, was displaying his authority. And he was making it well known that no man takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. Oh, I think he put those soldiers on the ground just to prove, to publicly prove he is who he says he is. And they're not going to take his life from him. He's going to hand it over. That he's in charge, no matter what it looks like, he is the Lord and He is the one in charge. I'm quite certain that's why those soldiers went to the ground because Jesus willed it to be so. He laid His life down. He is in charge. In the same way, God's Word reigns supreme throughout eternity, just as it did then. So in reference to the you know, in reference to the teachings mentioned earlier, if Jesus died only as a man, then it would have done no good for anybody else. He could not have taken upon himself the sins of the world. And Christianity would be just an empty, hopeless religion. It took, a, it took a man to pay for man's sin. Okay, Mankind brought sin into the world. Man had to pay for it. That's why Jesus came as a man. But it took God to have the authority to forgive those sins. And if Jesus had died just as a man, it would have been an empty gesture. He had to be a man to pay the penalty, but he had to be God to forgive those sins. 
to have that authority. So it's imperative that Jesus came as both man and God. At the same time, he's fully man and fully God all at the same time. Don't ask me to explain it, because I can't, so I'm not going to try. But it is what it is. And without being both, he could not have been the Messiah. He could not have been the Christ. He could not have fully paid for our sins and forgiven us and then had the authority and the power of life, resurrection on the third day, which granted us the promise of eternal life. That is the Christ whom we serve. That is the Jesus whom we worship. The one who is God, always has been God, always will be God. The one who came to us when we couldn't go to him. The one who offered himself in our stead. Because we couldn't do it. We who are all doomed to hell because we were disobedient and in rebellion to the Lord. Jesus said, I got this. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I've got this. I'll take your penalty. Just know that I am who I say I am. Trust me as your Redeemer, as your Lord, as your Savior, as the Christ, as the Messiah. Trust me. That's what he's saying. And that's what all the witnesses attest to. Bottom line, as we close out here, is God's word and his testimony are completely reliable. We can trust it. And we need to reject any testimony, any word, that contradicts that, it's not true. If you have truth over here and you have something that contradicts the truth over here, then that must be a lie if this is the truth. So we need to reject anything that goes against the teaching of the Bible itself. As, and as, as, as a quick follow-up once more, is we need to be witnesses ourselves. Don't take anything fancy. But there are so many facets to being a healthy church, one that glorifies the Lord, But one of those is, is we can't be stuck here inside these four walls focusing only on us that are here. The focus needs to be Jesus Christ. And we need to be out in the world sharing the love and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, hence the Suggestion on the, on the Christmas parade. Doesn't take anything fancy. Doesn't take a whole lot of people. Look what Jesus did with 12 disciples. 
He changed the world. It's his world to change, of course. But he changed the world. Doesn't have to be anything elaborate. Point is, we need to be out among the people. We need to be visible. We need to be sharing the gospel in some small way. And trust me, God will use that faithfulness. He will bless that faithfulness. But that's just part of, just part, now like I said, just a piece of what we need to be doing. We need to be his witnesses. He provided witnesses so that we may believe. And we need to be helping that we need to be taking those witnesses and be those witnesses in the world around us so that they may believe in the midst of a world that otherwise does everything it can to obscure the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We need to be the ones shining the light because they do everything they can to block it out. And what are we doing to make it seen? Let's pray with me. We go into Mr. Bill. You want to do the invitational song, or do you want to just? Uh... We'll just go out and pray. Okay, no problem. So pray with me, please, as as we close out. Father, we just thank you so much for your word.